We're looking for two oil boys who can grease us up before each competition. You do the thing you're scared shitless of, and you get the courage after you do it. That's the way it works. That's the dumbass way to work. It should be the other way around. You'll have to excuse my friend. The town is back that way. You should make a radical change in your lifestyle. I mean, the core of man's spirit comes from new experiences. That's the way it works. Don't worry, we'll catch our break too. Just gotta keep our eyes open. You never know. I think me and me and me and Dusty were pretty lined there. I'm a little off rhythm. It's all right. <laughs> all good. All right. Welcome to. Correct me if I'm wrong, Tommy. Episode eight of the Looks Like We're Lost podcast. The Cal Ripken Jr. Pod. Stepping. You know what? I'm actually glad I asked. That gives you the first time I've asked you to say something before I've introduced you, and you get to honor a local hero. <laughs> exactly. So joining me, as always, I'm Dustin Redazel, and joining me is a man who has never been banned from Twitter. It's Tommy Cooksey. Oh, uh, dude! You know the uh, the, the circulating uh, meme with the. Um... It's got like Leonardo DiCaprio with kind of the smug look on his face, oh, yeah. and uh, the, the the message above it is like, uh, "This is me still being able to uh, fly on planes and use my Twitter account." And it's like the smug face. I believe the face you're referring to is from Django Unchained, Quentin Tarantino's movie. That, that would I know be correct because I know movies. That you do know movies, and. Uh, <laughs> I actually created. I don't even use Twitter. I think you guys. I know Jerry uses uses uh, Twitter pretty extensively, but I created a, a name T Cook Six Strings, which didn't really age well. I don't play the guitar that much anymore, <laughs> and so uh, it's just kind of like a what could have been. Well, you know where it did age well. When uh, if I ever get this novel published, which I hope to, uh, it's huge goal for twenty twenty one. Um, one of the main characters, uh, his name is Thomas Morrill, and he goes by the nickname, he's a stand-up comedian, Tommy Six Strings. So, you inspired something. (laughs) There it is, man. There it is. So, uh, guys, we do have a guest on today. Um, his name is Jeremy Moeller, and, um... I don't know how much uh, preamble I want to do here, Jeremy. I'll let you get into most of it. But Jeremy is a a writer, a meditation coach. Um, I have been... He he came back. He came on uh, for the OG fans of the Cheeto Dust podcast. And I think even though Cheeto Dust ended abruptly, we always wanted to have more conversations. Uh, that was a an awesome conversation around meditation that left me thinking differently about the way I approached my life. And I know we've wanted to get into some other topics, so hopefully we'll do some of that today. Uh, but Jeremy, I'll let you introduce yourself a little bit based upon this question. Um, because there's so many ways people could answer this question. Most people usually answer with their career, however they pay their mortgage. But I'm curious, how do you answer the question, what do you do? Uh, first, I just want to thank you both for having me on here. Uh, I feel like I th- we might have talked about this last time, but 
I feel like any friend of Tommy's is, is probably going to be somebody that I want to have, you know, I can have a good time with and roll with pretty easily. Uh, that just says a lot about Tommy, his old friend of mine. So means a lot to be talking to you guys. And I also really dig the format or the intention behind this new podcast, this idea of getting lost. And I'm hoping we, we can get to that today. That made me nervous coming into this, more nervous than last time, but also excited, you know, um, because I feel like I enter into so many conversations from a place of, oh, I got to say the right thing. I got to know what I'm talking about. I got to be an expert on this. And it's just really refreshing to come into something with a different intention um, and perhaps grow a little bit, you know, which is, I think, what it's all about. Uh, To answer your question, though... um, I'm actually going to jump in on okay, my own okay. question. Okay, <laughs> okay. Do it, do it. I was just having a conversation last night with one of my oldest friends. He's one of uh, my roommates in college, and I consider him one of the most intelligent people that I've had a long-standing relationship with. And he's going into all these uh, different books he's been reading, topics he's been getting really passionate about. And he, I, I encouraged him to have some sort of execution, some sort of output. Are you writing anything down? Are you, are you talking in a, a group? Like, or is it just all input? And he said he couldn't get past the, the arrogance of acting like he had something, like he was some sort of expert, and that that was a huge hurdle for him to get over. And, uh, you know, we, we hung on the topic for about 30 minutes, and I hope I brought him around to it. But I think that line between nervousness and excitement is exactly the one we want to straddle. So let me repay the thanks and say thanks for being open and not being afraid of it. And now uh, I guess back to the question, what do you do? Yeah, I was going to say um, it, it, that actually kind of segues nice into my answer because – I feel like I I'm, am a little bit of an expert or I feel like one around this question because I lived in D.C. for 12 years. And that's like what everybody asks you in D.C. What do you do? What do you do? And it's all about career. You're like, wh- where are you headed in life? Um, but to be honest, I mean, what I say is usually I'm a writer. That's the first thing I say because uh, I just do a lot of things. Um, but first and foremost, I consider myself a writer. And I write about, I like to say, public stuff, public things, the value of public goods, public schools, public parks, libraries, public water. Uh, So I work for a think tank where we study that stuff and write about and advocate for the value of those things remaining public and not falling into private hands. Like there's certain things in our society that should be public and democratically controlled. So that's what I write about. First and foremost, I also write about meditation in psychology, increasingly more about psychology over the over the years here. And then I also, like you said, teach meditation. But like in all of those things, except for maybe the first thing around the public stuff, um, I'm almost like trying to not be an expert now. <laughs> I mean, I want to know I want to know more and I want to have a better grasp about how I feel about each of those things. I want to be more skilled. I want to be a craftsman as a writer. Uh, I'm really curious how you feel about that, Dusty. Um, But Mm -hmm. uh, like the craft of writing itself. 
But I like teaching meditation, for example, last night I, t- I taught a class or two nights ago, I taught a class online and one of the folks that showed up actually texted me afterward and, and said, you know, that was really great. And it was because you were, it was like this, like kind of loving, just caring presence. And we were talking about what happened last week with the, um, with the, the insurrection at the Capitol. So we're sort of processing some of that stuff in the meditation class. And so it just, it occurred to me that it wasn't anything in particular that I said, right. Or that I brought to that class. It was more the presence uh, of almost being vulnerable and not really knowing what the answer is and being okay with that. And that's what resonated with this particular student. So that mm. that's my winding answer to your question. Well, I like the, uh, the ending thing with the student. You know, we can call it vulnerability, but like an openness to connection during uncertainty. Uh, that same friend I just mentioned that I was talking to last night, I was also talking about, you know, the, the riots and um, Trump getting kicked off Twitter and impeachment and like all these things that are normally not up my alley. Anybody who's known me for a long time, like I'm not really a political activist type of guy, but I couldn't, what bothered me was that I couldn't stop being bothered. Like I couldn't like be apathetic about it or like zone it out. And I was saying like, it's been a recent occurrence in my life that I feel like I need to care about these topics. I need to be engaged so that I can have some sort of influence on whatever my sphere of my, my human network is. And I think the thing he said that was really enlightening to me was like, yeah, but you don't want to be a person that just like has a take. Like if you're not trying to like bring a take to the conversation, like, if anything, you want to know what's going on there so that you can be interested and show other people that you're interested in their feelings. And that creating that connection with somebody is actually the opposite of all this, you know, take a side and fight the other half of the nation. And so I think the fact that you're able to do that in a class setting, like actually creating a physical you know, virtual space, as it were, but an actual space for people to access that is awesome. And, you know, when I get really optimistic about what what Tommy and I are doing with these conversations here, I hope that that's eventually how people feel when they turn on the, the 45 minutes, 90 minutes that we give once a week, because that's what Tommy and I are trying to get out of it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. uh, You know, the one thing I'll add there real quick is that I feel like an important thing to know about my class on Tuesday nights is it's a pretty self-selected group of people. So it's, it's sort of like people that know that I'm pretty political. I'm pretty lefty. I have a, you know, sort of particular analysis about things politically and I'm, and I'm combining meditation with that. You know, I have my podcast meditation for the 99%. So there's a certain safety that's sort of set up in that where I don't need to go through the whole analysis and lay out like what is right and wrong about what happened, for example, um, in that class, because people already are on somewhat of the same side. Um, and then that allows us to kind of be vulnerable 
I was just thinking when you were saying that, that like, as soon as it moves into like the public sphere with Twitter, like you were talking about earlier, like I'm scared as hell. I, I, there's a part of me that wants to have the take and, and is trying to throw the take out there because that's what everyone's doing. And, uh, there's a part of me that, that pulls back and is scared to do that because I know I'm going to get destroyed by somebody. And that really hurts me. Like, oh, well, it doesn't really hurt is a strong word. It affects me when someone like responds to a tweet and they disagree even slightly. It really does. Like it stays oh, yeah. with me for a while. <laughs> so, yeah, I remember, uh, I was writing for, uh, examiner.com. I don't know if you remember the examiner sites, but I yeah. wrote for one when I was like 23, like right out of college. And I was working for a TV station and doing a lot of like early, uh, three screen sales, like mobile advertising. So we were supposed to act like we knew about social media. So I was trying to act like I knew about social media advertising. And I wrote, I wrote an article about like Wikipedia and it being reputable. And this dude whose like list of credits was so much more impressive than my 23 year old list of credits came back on me so hard that I wrote a whole nother article debunking my original article. And it turns out years later, I agree way more with my first article. And my second article was basically bullshit, you know? So it's, it's a tough place to engage. I totally get that fear. Uh, I meant to ask you before we... We get too sidetracked living in the D.C. area for a while. You, uh, with everything that's happened over the past few weeks, like, are all your people okay? Like, do you know folks who are impacted personally? What's the, you know, you're a little closer to the the local temperament than I feel a little. Uh, you know, my I was in the hospital with my newborn daughter the day it all yeah. happened. I feel kind of like sequestered from it all. Yeah, congratulations about that. Um, well, thank you. That's that's really yeah. why I just had to like wedge that in. <laughs> <laughs> you, mean, you, you, you really, really should. I really should. Yeah. <laughs> that happens on almost every on almost every like business call that I'm on. I make sure to work in that we got two kids and we're like trying to figure it all out with the people can relate. You know, I'm just looking for the I'm just looking for the attaboy. <laughs> I mean, you heard me in the beginning, right? Like, before, I think it was before we started recording. Like, I always try to fit in. I live completely by myself. Like, there's no one here, and, you know, I'm alone and all that stuff. So I think we're all doing that. Yeah, uh, Get the sympathy. Yeah, right. Uh, thank you for asking, Dusty. Um, so I don't have anyone that was like, hmm, I don't even know what directly impacted really means because there wasn't, like, a counter-protest, right? So there weren't, like any of my like activist friends that were out there, like really kind of in, in the fray. I do uh, have an old friend that's a journalist that, that works in the Capitol building regularly has been there for a couple decades. And uh, I just, I haven't talked with him because we haven't talked in a while, but I just saw his social media post about, and it, about like grabbing a piece of like a shard of, of wood as like a weapon to defend himself. Um, because he couldn't get out. So he had to go up to like this attic space with a bunch of other reporters. Um, and he, he's a white guy. So he said he even grabbed like someone dropped like a don't tread on me flag. And he grabbed it just in case and like had it with him in case he needed that to get out. Like he would like hold it up and act like he's part of, mm. you know, 
the, the, the group there and, uh, and find his way out. So just even like that put me into the position of like empathizing, like even trying to imagine what that, that moment was like, whatever that hour or two hours or whatever it was for him. And then think about like the Congress folks as well. Um, yeah, it's just, that was a little bit of a first, first, uh, you know, or secondhand kind of view into it. Uh, I, I did hear from a number of people, of friends in DC, mostly people of color, uh, that like were just afraid of walking around on the street even before it happened. Um, and they still are afraid with the inauguration coming up. Um, so they're kind of staying inside and, and that's a real thing for them. Um, but even white folks as well. So it's a real deal, man. I, the biggest, the biggest like thing that helped me was realizing that it was traumatic, even though I wasn't there like doom scrolling on social media, like built up all this energy. And I'm, I'm trying to learn more about trauma and how it shows up in the body and how it works. But, you know, I'm not trying to compare my experience with anybody that was there for sure. But, you know, any of us that sat there and like refreshed and doom scrolled and just sat, you know, for hours trying to figure out what was going on, it, it, like our bodies got ready to fight, right. Or ready to run or whatever it was. And and that energy had nowhere to go. So, uh, yeah, I had a moment, I had a moment when I was listening to a podcast, uh, I think it was this morning. We're, We're a week, week and a half, almost a week and a half away from it. And I got angry. Like I, like I said out loud, like I was like, I'm so damn mad right now. And I was in the car by myself and you know, this, this podcast, Similar to when you think about the journalists that were there and uh, the politicians that were one unlocked door away from who knows what, right? There's a humanistic element to it that we forget because, um, you know, it, there, there's these caricatures of the guy that's painted with the Braveheart look, right? And uh, And even then there's a humanistic element to even the people that might've showed up there with intentions of just protesting because it's something that they're passionate about. You know, there was, there was your, you know, your housewives and your, you know, your guys from the middle of the country that are disenfranchised, but they didn't go there to do what happened. Right. In the same way that people are out there angry protesting black lives matter, they went there to have their voice heard not break into stores and things like that. And so it's not, it's not exactly an equivalent, but there's a human element to this that, yeah, you're right, man. I mean, you just get angry and you start to feel scared for these people and you start, you know, it's like, I don't know, man, it's interesting to hear you, you know, hear your take on trauma about that. Cause you do start, to, you can very easily say, uh, well, it's not traumatic cause I wasn't there and it couldn't possibly be as bad as the people that experienced it. Hey, Jeremy, real quick. Do you mind pulling the uh, your mic maybe up a little bit? Uh, we're getting a lot of breath, breath into the microphone. Yep. Let's try that. There, That's good. That seems much better. And we can still hear your voice well. Yeah, cool. Uh, awesome. Thank you. So, Tommy, I, I just want everybody to hear your salient points. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm just I here think, to uh, jokes, man. That's what I'm here for. Well, I think the, how dare you, sir, that (laughs) self-deprecation will not stand. Uh, I've kind of gotten probably, to say I've gotten into trauma research would be drastically overstating it, but when I was trying to unravel 
what had happened to my mental state coming out of leukemia. Uh, I, I couldn't really make sense of it all. Like the, this huge thing had happened, this thing that should have changed everything. And yet I found myself back in the real world just doing stuff like I had always done it before. And I couldn't pair up the sense of it all. And it left me feeling a little bit crazy, a little bit, I don't know, just like off the tracks. And I've thought ever since then that, you know, trauma trauma isn't actually this, it can be a physical thing, right? Like a physical thing happens to you or it doesn't happen to you, but it mostly happens in the mind. And I think that's an interesting call out. Jeremy, that even if you were completely removed, to see something real and that unsettling, it does make you a little crazy. And I guess that's part of why, uh, you know, when, so everything happened on the 6th at the, at the Capitol. I'm in the hospital. We get out, and I'm like, I'm looking at my phone all day hoping like Tommy's confirming that like we are in fact going to have a podcast that <laughs> night on the 7th. Yeah. And I I could feel it after he and I had just talked and nothing I don't think we said anything like you know revelatory, right? It was just like it was a good conversation where we both got to air our feelings out. And I felt good. I woke up on Friday and I felt good. And then by mm-hmm. Saturday morning I'm in like fight texts. <laughs> I'm trying not to fight, but like <laughs> the people are saying stuff because something new happened and I've like I'm I'm elevated again. And mm-hmm. I guess that's what I meant when I'm saying like what bothers me is I can't stop being bothered. I, I have not yet sorted uh I haven't found mental clarity around all the events of the past couple of weeks yet. Yeah, I uh I feel you, man. And a lot of thoughts came up during that. Um, One is, yeah, when you said that trauma happens in the mind, um, I think what I heard there was like, as adults, it happens in the mind. If you you both have children, right? Like Mm -hmm. kids mostly know how to work out like a problem. Like they're going to cry. They're going to cry big and then five minutes later they're smiling and they're happy, right? Like they, they sort of like rode the, the, the energy and the emotions of that experience out or they have a tantrum or they go running around or whatever it is. But as adults, you know, for many reasons, we have to kind of hold it together. Um, some of us more than others, and maybe we can kind of segue into masculinity at some point around that. Right. So there's some gender stuff there too. Um, like the stoicism, right. Um, but yeah, then it just kind of festers. It sort of festers and, and circulates inside of us because we're like, oh, we need to figure out. Like, I'll speak for myself. I really wanted to figure out what happened at the Capitol, like make sense of it, find the clarity that you were talking about, right? Um, but actually in the last week, what's helped me more is meditation, you know, kind of letting go of those thoughts and that analysis, like being in my body more, which meditation allows me to do because I'm feeling my sensation, the sensations in my body, you know, doing some stretching, going for walks, working out, all that stuff, like getting in the body 
to circulate that energy. Also just talking and processing with people and, and kind of going back to the theme of the beginning of this conversation, like not knowing what the hell we're talking about and just being vulnerable about that. Like, I don't know what happens. Here's how I feel about it. I, none of us are going to have the answer, right? Like that sort of approach that feels soothing to me or has felt soothing. Um, and then the other thing, and, and this, this is kind of going off on a little tangent here. We don't have to go there, but like, I was actually looking for something bigger, like, and I don't have the words for it, except for spiritual. That's the word that makes sense mm -hmm. to me that could hold all of what happened and all the things I was feeling and all the contradictions and analysis and the humanity going back to what Tommy said about what happened um, and the people involved, like hold all of that in a larger sort of understanding and space. And I, I'm thinking of someone like an, a Martin Luther King Jr. or somebody that that could make me feel like I'm, you know, I'm sort of part of something bigger, you know, um, and and be okay with not having the answer about what happened on Wednesday. And I didn't really find that except for there was this poem that I found that, that, that kind of summed it up for me and made me feel that. Um, and I can share with you guys later on. But uh, yeah, those are, those are kind of my, those are the things that have worked. The like trying to figure it out with my mind and understand it and listen to like political podcasts about it does, hasn't helped at all. Hmm. Yeah, I was listening to um, Sanjay Gupta, you know, the doctor that was on CNN a ton when the pandemic first uh, first took off. He, you know, he's, a, he's a neurosurgeon, and he was recently on. Speaking of being vulnerable, he was on uh, Armchair Expert with Dak Shepard. Yeah, and and he was talking about and this. This may be related. It might not be, but it made me think about it. That for the longest time we didn't think that the brain could regenerate cells. So basically, your brain was just mm -hmm. dying every day. And it is, I mean, it is dying every day. Like at some point it's going to be shriveled up and it's not going to be as, you know, but he, you know, he said that the, the two, the, the three things that keep your brain sharp and keep it functioning and keep it working are sleep, right? We, we've talked about that ad nauseum, but sleep, exercise, and a conversation with a friend mm -hmm. where you can be vulnerable where you can say, this is what I'm thinking, this is what I'm feeling. And e even more so than sitting down and doing two hours of crossword puzzles, those three things have proven to improve brain function or, or you know, keep the brain sharp. And it's, you know, it, it, a lot of the studies they did in his book was like, you know, they went to societies where there's low cases of dementia, low cases of anxiety, things like this. And they're, like agrarian, they, they walk. The only time they sit down is when their body's like, "We're gonna die now." Like that's when they that's when they sit down and they, you know. So it's almost like by engaging. That's the in way that, to go. Yeah, it's, it's like it's like it's like Forrest Gump, you know, running. It's like, yeah, I think I'm done now. I think I'll <laughs> go home now. now, you know. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's funny that it's that it that it's that simple. That you know what what you've done and, and how you processing it is talking with people, exercising just and really to figure it out you had to stop trying to figure it out exactly right well i'll add since i said trauma happens in the mind it's i probably take this for granted because i have such a like i have a very regimented physical approach to every single day hmm. 
Yeah. And so I probably take for granted the fact that the mind is a part of the body, you know? Um, but I can, I can speak at least for my personal experience when I stopped drinking so much and I started making sure I got eight hours every night and I lost 45 pounds. I don't think it's a coincidence that I'd been trying to write books my entire life and all of a sudden, like, I've essentially completed two manuscripts in the last four years, right? Like those things, like my, the thing that was, I saw as a basically an intellectual pursuit. Like once I got my body under control, like my mind could execute. And I think there's probably something to be said for that on like emotional stability as well. Yeah. The there's one thing, a, uh, uh, Oh, go ahead, Jeremy. One little thing, just responding to that. Well, two things, sorry. One, I'm just starting to write a book. Dude, it's hard, man. I have so much mad respect for what you've pulled off. Like, are, I've, are, you I've, writing a, are you writing a novel? Or are you writing nonfiction? No, or what do you, uh, you just like a, a... Yeah, it's, it's a nonfiction about burnout. That's kind of the general oh, yeah. approach right now. But I'm like a couple thousand <laughs> words in, so... That's going to become very ironic in a year. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> right? <laughs> um no, uh, and I've seen your social media posts about like thousands of words, you know, or whatever, you know, tens of thousands of words, man. So I, you're one of my inspirations for getting getting down on into the, onto the page every morning. But um, the other thing I was going to say real quick is that I, I I don't know how accurate this is, but apparently eighty percent of the information that travels from the mind to the body, or between the mind and the body, is from the body to the mind. Right? It's not the other way around. So. Basically, the body has a lot more influence over the brain than the other way around. So it makes sense with what Have you ever saying. read Body that's, Keeps the Score? That's where I got that from. <laughs> yeah, I haven't read it. It's on my list. You know, it, I think Dusty, so I, Dusty's like my, um, he's sort of like my librarian, my curator. And uh, so I'm always like, because he, <laughs> he pounds out books. I mean, dude, if I read five books in a year, I've really done something. <laughs> So like each each book selection, it's kind of like a like a baseball player. I get like five at bats a year, and it's either yeah. going to be I'm going to bat a thousand or I'm going to bat like a hundred. <laughs> you know, I think it just made my Pinch decision. Hitter. I've had that, yeah, dude, yeah, yeah, Tony Womack. So I um, <laughs> I I had that book written down, and I think you've you've rec- so you've just recommended it, and a bunch of other people. That, that's next on the list. I'm writing it down. If no, if nothing else comes out I of just, this conversation, I just read it, Dad. I'm picking. I, I picked my next book. So yeah, let's uh, let's do a book club pod in like two months. on body keeps the score. It'd be great. <laughs> Did you just hear what I said, dude? I said five books a year. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> okay, we'll we'll do give it in me December. At least three. Yeah, give me at least three months. <laughs> yeah. So the one thing I was gonna. Uh, to, I guess, like, and put a cap on this, and then I would like to move on to a topic uh, around modern masculinity and, you know, what that means. But in looking for a bigger, a larger receptacle to fit all the analysis into, um, you know, most of the folks that I grew up with would have chosen, like, faith as that larger receptacle. And, you know, you said spirituality. And, 
I have been I've been wrestling with that topic for a couple of years now. Um, you know what what I think I know about it empirically versus what I feel about it. You know, familiarly versus what I feel about it personally is is just me, and it's it's basically all that to say I don't know if it fits there but something that I wrote recently I, I write a I wrote a birthday letter when my son was born and when he turned one and I'm working on the one for when he turns two it's like 3,000 words about like you know what did I learn as a father what what have I observed in him as a growing boy and like I'm hoping it will be like a book when he turns 18 that I can like hand him uh, and kind of encapsulate what that journey was like for both of us. And so I, I was trying to say like, hey man, you know, his birthday is in February. It's like, it has been a weird year since your last birthday. <laughs> it is. Some s- <laughs> new shit has come to light, you know? <laughs> and uh, so... I started getting into, uh, you know, a global pandemic. A guy named George Floyd was killed by the police. Uh, There was a presidential election, hot debate around it. Um, There was a riot at the Capitol. Uh, The the president got banned by a tech company. I'm getting through (laughs) all that, and I, I, I finally got to sort of... I was like, this is this is all wordy, and he's he is not going to care about any of this in twenty thirty seven, right? And it, Tommy, it reminded me of that like, care for yourself, treat yourself as if you're someone you're responsible for taking care of. I've, yeah. I've messed the phrasing up on that, but that Jordan Peterson saying that you reminded me of. Uh, yeah. And he's certainly not the first person to have that idea, right? It's just yeah, where I, we got I it. I think I think that was uh, I think that was Jesus that said that the first part. <laughs> mm-hmm. mm-hmm. that, that's a wise cat. <laughs> the but I I basically got through all that, and I was just like the thing that I I left him with that I wrote down, and we'll see how it all edits, but was that the real reason for our nation's conflicts is because when the brave and the fearful collide, when the brave and the fearful meet, more often do they collide than they mix. And if both show up, life gets messy. And that's as true internally as it is for groups of people. And just telling them, this is important. Do not condemn the mess. Hmm. You know, messy doesn't mean bad. Most people think messes are bad, but they're not. They're just complex. And once I, once I went through the effort of processing all that, I guess my larger receptacle was thinking about like giving the most meaningful aspect. Get this simple. What is the most meaningful thing I could pass to a future version of myself or a child that, you know, however you need to contextualize it to get bigger than the moment. And that more than as much as the exercise and, you know, talking with Tommy and friends, like that really let me let go of it. I was Mm -hmm. like, this is not going to be 
everything I think it is now. Like, I understand what's happening here in principle, even if I right. don't know the actual causal issues that, like, why a guy puts on a Viking outfit and does what he does, yeah. right? Like, yeah. that, that's, what, what I'm his, not going to understand that. What, what his end game plan was there, right? Just go storm the Capitol, declare the election, and then get back on a plane and fly home, right? You, you're never going to know, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so I I like that though, man. Jeremy, I, I do, like yeah. that. Well, I, I remember this from our com- our <clears throat> conversation with with you, Jeremy, on uh, the Cheeto Dust Pod. Um, that we you brought up like where does prayer and meditation like mm. intersect? And I guess I'm I apologize for chewing up the airtime there, but. I've gotten to this place where practically for me, meditation and prayer intersect with how do I take a complex idea and make it something simple enough that I can pass along to my son. Hmm. And that takes a lot of acceptance of conflicting ideas in my own mind. And it takes a lot of sitting with it. I do that with a a page that becomes words, but I think there's a lot of ways people can find that sort of spiritual receptacle, uh, forms of art, forms of conversation, etc. Yeah, I I know you want to move on, and and I'd like to too. I just want to respond really quickly. I think the the words that stood out to me were letting go, uh, something bigger. Um, I think of that as something bigger than myself. Um, and then that leads me to my ver- my definition in the simplest sense of spirituality is just purely connection. Connection with something beyond myself. Um, so that could be nature, right? Um, it could be anything, really. And I think it also dovetails with what Tommy, I've heard you talk about on some recent podcasts around control. Um, and that so that letting go of the control right? And the messiness of what happened last week, and then having a spiritual view on that of like, I don't know what happened. But it happened, right? I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna fight that. Um, so yeah, those are the, yeah, that was great. I like, I like, I like that aspect of writing. I get that. I get that as well. I write through my spirituality. Yeah. Mm. All right, I'm gonna do a hard pivot, guys. Let's do it. <laughs> I'm ready. Let's go. So, yeah, I I want to talk about the topic of masculinity. And, you know, Tommy and I were we were going to get into that topic uh for ourselves, like try to find our baseline on uh last Tuesday and then my wife went into labor and we we never got into it. So, we we didn't really baseline on our own ideas around it. So, you know, we'll we'll see what we have to offer. But I guess a good place to start is just, and I would like all three of us to to try to answer this question, and that is just masculinity. It's a word. It means something. Right, Tommy, I'll start with you. What is masculinity? What does that word even mean to you? What is it? Yeah, dude, I, I, this is something, as, as you know, I mean, I've, I've put a lot of thought into this because... <clears throat> 
you know, we, we grew up, I say we, because I grew up, you know, Jeremy and I grew up going to the same, same schools often in a very blue collar, <clears throat> blue collar town where, you know, it, you know, I'm, I'm from my lineage is a farming family of 12 kids who one of them was a fam was it was a was one of 12 sons and so like it, it's kind of like the thing that i that i sent you where you know a man's man masculinity is you know i i i, I fix things you know i don't have i don't show emotions i'm stoic um i like tinkering you know yard work and it's like all these physical it's very physical um it's also some peacocking like i'm always be a puff you know you puff your chest out and you know someone close to me said you know you're not a man unless you've suffered and that that one hit me because it's you know it was suffering in a sense that only this person the way that they perceived suffering was only a one, it was just a one lane highway, right? It wasn't like, what about emotional suffering? What about spiritual, you know, what about any other kind of suffering? And so, you know, I think I'm at a different point with what is masculinity than I was even five years ago. Um, since being married, having kids, because, um, you know, I think to, to, to little boys, little girls, the, the notion of gender is really almost doesn't, I don't, does it even exist? I don't know. Like they're just, they're just like to play together, you know? So, I mean, I think that's my, my long winded answer of that's what I used to see it as. And there's still parts of me that thinks, well, if we get a new light fixture, I'm not a man. If I don't hang the light fixture, I'm not masculine. If I don't hang the light fixture and I, I hate hanging light fixtures and I suck at it. Because it's just not something I'm familiar with, nothing I'm interested in. Uh, but I still kind of struggle through it and second guess. And then, you know, I have this worrying syndrome where I just think the house is going to catch on fire because I didn't wire it right. So I think that's, you know, I don't, I don't know if that answers the question directly, but it's definitely like your Tim Allen is a man, right? In, in home improvement, right? <laughs> like that's ma- like that's a masculine man or Al Bundy or, or Al Borg, uh, masculine uh, man, uh, uh. right? I don't know. That's kind of what I grew up thinking being masculine would be, right? Mm-hmm. Jeremy, do you have a an answer to what is masculinity? Yeah, it's funny when it when when I figured you were going to come to me before Tommy went, you know, eventually, and then Tommy started talking. I was like, no, Tommy's wrong. I got the right answer. I'm going to figure out the most clever <laughs> thing to say, you know. <laughs> And like, that was sort of like some masculine, masculine shit, right? Like, and then Tommy went on to say, well, this is what I used to think and it's evolving. And I was like, yeah, it's exactly how I feel. Um, so yeah, I think for me, I'm confused about it. I'll just start with that. I'm confused about what masculinity means. It feels like a slippery thing that kind of eludes my understanding pretty often. Uh, I will say that I've, it's become easier for me to think about and think through when I've detached it from gender. So I grew up in a family where I had the manual labor sort of blue collar dad. Um, My dad worked for FedEx, delivered packages for FedEx for, you know, over 30 years. Um, 
And he also owned a, like a tree business and cut grass and build stuff. And just, he's the dude that like can fix anything. Um, so the, that's some like traditional, traditional esque sort of masculinity. But then my mom is the breadwinner. You know, my dad worked the blue collar job. My mom worked uh, as a software engineer, you know, early when women weren't really doing that job. And, um, and so she had to be, uh, and I'm going to get around to what masculinity means to me in this case, but like she had to be quote unquote masculine in that career. And she also has, you know, since I've known, since I've been alive, like she sort of makes the financial decisions. I mean, she collaborates with my dad around things, but she's sort of thinking of the big picture in the family around retirement and how we're going to handle that. And do we have the resources for all of this? Right. So there's sort of a traditional masculine aspect to that. You know, when you think of like, at least in America, the traditional housewife, you know, handling inside the house and then the, the, the husband, the man handles the finances and the planning, right. And where we're headed. So I grew up with some sort of mixed signals around, Oh, there's a woman that's sort of running the show in some sense. Now you put my mom outside with like the dirty engines and she's going to be like, Oh, like my hair, I need to fix my hair and (laughs) my clothes got dirty. Right. So like, there's a lot of different things there. Um, so that's led me to be pretty confused, but it also allows me to say, okay, well, like masculinity doesn't have to be something that, that only men have right. Or need to carry. I think at certain times in our history, the gen, when genders, when the genders were more polarized for so many different reasons, Um, And that's a whole separate conversation doesn't actually almost doesn't matter why. But like we the people with the male bodies were sort of forced to play that role and carry that masculinity. Right. And then over time now, as more women have entered the workforce and things have changed and norms have changed, it's shared a little bit more. Right. Like, I mean, the last thing I'll say real quick is I live alone right now in a house that I just bought. So. I'm one on the one hand, I spend time like putting down the floor and putting up the light fixtures like Tommy was talking about. Right. And doing the man, quote unquote, manly shit. And then I got to like make my dinner and, you know, uh, go to therapy and like take care of myself and like, you know, do the quote unquote feminine stuff. And I'm sort of carrying both of those things for myself at the moment. And I think everybody's sort of doing that a little bit more. So I was I'm curious on your opinion on this, Jeremy. I was talking, knowing that we were going to have this conversation, I was talking to my wife a little bit about this, and I, I'm interested in the way that words have like a purpose and are helpful, and then I think they carry that purpose a little too long. Mm-hmm. And I think masculinity is one of those words, and you kind of referred to it like people with the male bodies, uh, and where that kind of left folks, but... What I'm curious about your input on was how much of masculinity in America do you think has really been defined by economics? And the, what, I'm, what I'm driving at is, on the whole, America is a very wealthy country. And it has kind of continuously increased in like the wealth and the services over definitely the time I've been alive, but you could probably make a case back to World War II. And I think there probably was a time, and this is all just like I'm 
I'm making it up, right? I have no <laughs> research on this. I think there probably was a time where the social pressure to be masculine made you a better caregiver for your family because if the plumbing broke and you didn't have the ability to fix it, you were going to cause your family financial hardship uh, to get somebody to cover that. And the more skills you had, the better caretaker you were. And I don't know if that's the same today as it was, but does any of that track with you at all? You know, you mentioned the bread. The reason I'm bringing this your direction is because you mentioned the breadwinner aspect of mm. it. Yeah, I, I, I think that the, the kind of your original question around it being connected to economics and how much it is, I think, I think that line of thinking clears things up and, and, and you're starting to get down that track a little bit there. I think about it more as like, um, or what's been helpful for me to think through is like, you know, there was a time where one person in the family could work a middle-class job, a working-class job, and support the family financially. Um, that, that that was enough for the family to live on um, and live a decent life. And it just so happened. I mean, there's like I said, I have no, I don't know what the history is in terms of why men were the chosen ones for that, um, or maybe they chose it themselves. Uh, maybe we chose it ourselves. Um, <laughs> but. Uh, I don't want to like, you know, take away our agency here. <laughs> like, you know, I not, hear you. Not, not, yeah, right. <laughs> no, dude, take, dude, I want to take dude. responsibility. <laughs> we're, we're amorphous. I totally get dude. it. No, we're more amorphous. We're absolved. We're having the conversation. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> it happened to us. It's them. You know, I'm oppressed. Them. I'm oppressed. It's <laughs> them, someone else. Um, but, you know, and then now we've moved to where you, you really need two people to work you know, full-time more or less to have that middle-class lifestyle. And so that's, you know, partially an economic change. It's also a social change, right? Like feminism happened and women wanted to be more, have more agency and control over their lives. So they wanted to get jobs and they wanted to, um, you know, be equal with men and they still do, right? There's still like the, the wage gap, but that has then forced uh, you know, men and women to be in the workforce and sort of share the other duties that I don't want to like, this is like the big, so I'm, I'm a socialist and sort of have pulled and I, I'm just getting like confident enough to say that and, and like not afraid enough to say that out <laughs> loud. Um, I think Bernie Sanders running like helped, you know, mainstream it. So, but like socialist feminist feminists. Nah, like dude, McCarthyism is making a comeback. <laughs> I know it's, come, it's about to come back. It's it. always <laughs> the red scare, right, or whatever it was. Um, like, uh, there's this like whole kind of canon of research and, and, and writing and analysis from socialist feminists that kind of are, have argued that women were working as well. Like the housewife was doing work; she just wasn't getting paid for. Right. She wasn't getting a wage for it. But all that care work that goes into running a family, and I'm sure both of you know that um, with wives and, and children and, and you share some of it, too. I'm actually curious about how you guys think about this now. But like that used to be so divided between the man and the woman in the family and the man was getting paid and the woman wasn't getting paid. And then now the woman has entered into the workforce and they're both getting paid. But I guess what 
to circle back around to the economics, it now requires us to make more money to have this middle class lifestyle, right? So wages haven't really gone up over the years in terms of re related to productivity in the economy and like corporate profits and all that. So it's just like we've had to sh we've had to like share and trade off these kind of masculine and feminine traditional roles now. And it's a little more murky and gray. And I think that might be the primary reason why. There's so many men now being like, what is my role now? What do I do? Mm -hmm. You know, what's the authentic man, right? I have to like take care of the baby, you know, like, so. yeah, well, curious, it's, it's, curious your thoughts. Yeah, it's, it's funny you mentioned that. So there's a couple, I had a couple of things on that. One of them, I, I don't remember if it was in the article that, that you sent to us or if it was a podcast I listened to, but it, but it said, you know, the average wife with, with kids ends up working like 90 plus hours a week because when she comes home, she's still fulfilling a lot of the traditional feminist duties, making dinner, bathing the kids. I mean, me and Annie split things and we just divide and conquer, man. So I think that makes a little difference. I mean, it was, so, so that, that's one thing I think, you know, you're right that, that, you know, a lot of the work that traditionally women have done is not necessarily unnoticed, but, but in a, in a capitalist society unrecognized mm -hmm. right not appreciated um the the other the other piece that, that i was thinking there, there's two other things and I, i'll be quick with these um in in the in the article in the, also in the article one of the things that really struck me was how much we attribute to being a man and being masculine is just being human <laughs> like like caring for your family as if a woman doesn't care for her family, uh, protecting your family. And the guy even made a joke like, you know, the mama bear syndrome is a real thing. You don't want to mess with the mom after you've hurt their, their child. We, we've attributed these things to like being a man, being masculine, but they're just human traits. Right. Um, and, and the, the, but, but it, when it becomes, toxic or how it can become toxic is when you feel this responsibility for your family, you then feel the need to control their actions and their behaviors and who they see and what they do. Because if you're responsible for it, if you feel like society says you have to be responsible, well, the more you can control, the less that you don't, that, you know, that that's left to chance, right? And that creates that toxic environment, that toxic masculinity and it even says, like, once the family leaves, the kids leave, maybe the wife leaves, what is the man left to do except take his own life, right? He does nothing left to uh, – so, so that, that really struck me. And then the final thing that – you know, it's, this is a very, I think, American masculinity thing. So when, when, our, when our youngest was born, Milo, uh, our, our company, Cisco, has a pretty awesome paternity leave – policy and i think i took either 10 or 12 weeks off because annie do being a hairstylist she can't like if she's not working she could potentially lose her clients and she really loves what she does so she wanted to go back after six or eight weeks whenever she was you know healthy and doctor cleared to go back and so i i stayed home with him for like it was either six weeks or four weeks three or four days a week just me and the the you know, half, pe half the people that found that out are like, well, that's pretty cool. It's awesome that you get to do that. And some people are like, 
oh man, you're hang with the kid for that long. What are you going to do with an infant? And it's like, <laughs> I didn't know, but the opportunity to do it, it was like, this is amazing. You know what I mean? And, and I think I gained a greater appreciation for, you know, you have to sort of develop some sort of maternal. I mean, there, I do think that maternal and, and masculinity are not are antonyms, you know, they're, they're not opposites, but you, know, you, you develop these maternal things that are that are really cool and, and kind of bond you with your with your kids. So I went on a bit of a tangent there, but I don't even know where, where I was going with it, to be quite honest. But no, those are some g- of the things good. that, that I, what you said kind of triggered those for me. I, I kind of wanted to stick, I guess, close to point number two. And, uh, you know, <laughs> Jeremy and I basically came at the economics thing from completely – opposite mm-hmm. angles mm-hmm. <laughs> which which is fine i think uh i think there's a really good case to be made because like yes is the average american making more money yeah but there's been inflation everything's more expensive like how much money you're actually making isn't really the same about buying lifestyle so uh but i do think that like there used to be traditional roles mm-hmm. And that makes sense. And Tommy, you started to, and I think the traditional roles are not the same anymore. I don't think that they fit into 2021 like they did in 1951, right? Mm-hmm. And Tommy, you mentioned toxic masculinity, which is, I think, the cultural backlash to people feeling trapped by roles when they want to explore the freedom of their individuality. And I think what the easy thing to do on this topic is to like skate to the puck and say, oh, men and women are the same now, same opportunities. But my personal experience tells me that there are some good things in masculinity. Like the, the idea of I am a man and that means something is not is not something to like drill out of people. Like there's a recognition there um, that I think personally I think is undeniable. If you identify as uh, a heterosexual man or a homosexual man, like you, you know that you have an emotional preference for something, even if that is just delineated towards gender. So there is something real that is to be a man. Right. I don't know where I get lost is I don't know if that actually plays into societal roles, but I think there's something real in the male experience as you're growing up as a boy and looking at people that are like you as potential models for your life and trying to trying to play out all those possible examples like trying on potential paths for your future and something in that is masculinity and i i feel like it's intellectually unhelpful to just say like well men and women are the same now does that make sense i don't know if either of you guys have a response to that i'm not like coming around to a question I'll put it this way. So there is a question. Somebody can actually (laughs) respond (laughs) instead of me just leaving dead air. Is the idea of masculinity itself 
toxic because it creates boxes? Or is there something real about masculinity worth saving? I'll pick it up. Um, I think if masculinity is a ta- so I'm gonna I'm gonna slightly disagree with what you're saying, but I want to ca- like before, but I want to caveat it with saying that I'm only it's almost like a devil's advocate, but I'm I'm kind of split on this, right? So at sometimes I feel like how you feel, right? There's something redeemable in the 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 concept of the gender of a man, right, versus a woman, sort of a gender role. Um, an identity. However, I, I kind of, I've been over time kind of headed in this other direction. And that is that masculinity and femininity are concepts. They're, it's like a container for a, a list of certain behaviors and ways, ways of being in the world. And if we detach them completely from gender, right, from man or woman and women and men and everyone else, can have masculine qualities and feminine and present that at any moment really and kind of shift and be free, right? To have that dynamism as a human being, sort of the human stuff Tommy was talking about before. I sort of am like, what's wrong with that? What would be wrong with that? Mm. Right. And I I struggle to find something wrong with that. Like what could go wrong? I do too. Do you you see... I agree with you there. Do you guys see that maybe that maybe there's this like this like sliding scale and on one side you have hyper masculinity and the other side you have extreme you know feminist type qualities and at any point you can exist somewhere on that spectrum but it doesn't just because you're a man and you want to go get a pedicure right which would be more of a probably a, a traditionally a feminine thing doesn't make you not who, who you are it doesn't make you not a man right it doesn't make you but but as society defines it, it would make you less masculine. But but again, what does that mean? It's just it's. I, I've been thinking about this a lot because you know when like, like I mentioned, you have I have a young kid. His favorite color is pink. Well, why is that a female color? Mm-hmm. It's just a damn color. Just a color, right? <laughs> right? <laughs> it's a it's a color. We, we've we, we've we've attached. Mm-hmm. We, I mean that we, we've. For one reason or another, we've said, well, that's a, that's a woman color. That's a girl color. Yep. And I've just kind of, we've just kind of been like, let you, why wouldn't you like pink? It's bright. It's vibrant. Like cotton candy is pink. You know what I mean? Like, so yeah. why wouldn't that be your favorite color? And, you know, as, as you're raising a boy, you're like, well, why can't, let's just let him like the color pink. You know what I mean? It's, it's, you know, he's, he's four years old. He likes it. So what? <laughs> You know what, what's funny? I have a, a little quick story right off, based off pink. I uh, so I just bought this house that I'm in. And Congrats! When I by bought the way. it. I didn't know you bought it. I thought I didn't appreciate know if you were renting it. your body. Yeah, man. I appreciate it, man. Uh, and it's pink. It's bright pink. Uh, it was it was painted <laughs> that way. Um, apparently, flamingos are like a thing in this neighborhood in terms of like a mascot for the neighborhood. I don't know why Baltimore is associated with flamingos. Uh, and this was Airbnb. So it was like the flamingo house and it, it's bright. I mean, super bright pink. Right. Mm-hmm. And when I was buying it, I was like, eh, I don't know how I feel about that. Right. I was kind of conflicted. So I, I started throwing it out there to people to see how they reacted. Yeah. Every, every single woman was like, that's amazing. That's awesome. Like I would send them the picture and like, that's great. Like every woman in my life. Um, my dad was the only person to be like, eh, you might want to paint that. 
Like that was his reaction. And when he said that, he texted it to me. I felt inside I changed a little bit. Like, ooh, mm-hmm. maybe I should paint that. You know, like it was like a man to man thing. Then I sent it to my buddies who live in Baltimore. Uh, Josh Davis uh, is one yeah. of them. Tommy, yeah, you know him. A couple other guys uh, that I played music with. And they were like, dude, pink is awesome, man. That's so cool. Like they, they totally, like I thought they were going to react like my dad, but they were like thumbs up on it. And I was like, yeah, all right, I'm going to own this. Yeah. And I'm like all about the pink house now. <laughs> so yeah, there's something about like, we're getting signals constantly from other men, or at least I am, right? Yeah, Even though absolutely. I'm trying to be above it and be like, oh, what's wrong with pink? And have that intellectual perspective of like, it doesn't matter. You know, we've evolved past all this. I'm still picking up signals constantly and reading dude, it. Uh- yeah, I'm, I can be very hard on my – so, you know, you know my brother. You guys both know Greg Cooksey HVAC, shout out. Um, very handy. It's like, cold this winter. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, so I had, I had shoulder surgery recently, um, and we had this, this chandelier come in that, that Annie uh, needed, needed hung. And I, I mean, I couldn't do it. Her in-laws were – or my, my in-laws were in town. They tried, and there, there were some issues. And, you know, G comes over here, and he's got it hung to perfection in like, you know, 30 minutes, but I can be really hard on myself where like that same task could take me three hours easy. And I'll, and I'll start to then think, gosh, what kind of, in my brain, sometimes out loud, what kind of man am I? I can't hang a light fixture. You know what I mean? And, uh, you're right. You you get, it's definitely the, the signaling from usually from, from other guys and for whatever reason, you know, good natured, we all rib each other pretty hard. Right. Um, but, but then it's at some point you begin to internalize that stuff. It's like, well, damn, you know what I mean? So I don't know, just a quick story off the side of that, that I, you know, I I can be hard on myself in the same way that when your dad sends you a message like, Oh yeah, I would probably paint that. You're like, you're, like you start to feel it in your gut, right? It's Felt like, it. oh, like I, I'm sorry, I'm gonna have diarrhea right now because my, like, oh my gosh, like maybe this is the bad idea. How much is it again? You know, like, can I negotiate mm-hmm, now mm-hmm, because exactly. of the color? And, yeah. Well, you know what? Uh, and I think the Tommy hearing about, you know, your son with pink, I think is a good, a maybe a good contrast for two things that are in my head. Uh. The first one is, and like intellectually, I can get past this pretty quickly, but part of it is, you know, the way I was raised is like, you hear that, and for me, the, it, you know, you sent us that Bill Burr bit that was a joke, right. the, and, you know, I don't even want to use the word here, but like, what are you, gay, was the, right. he uses a, a gay slur, but like, the, there is some sort of latent homophobia that has not been, at least in my personal world, that has not been wiped out. You know, I was I was raised to believe it was wrong, and I hear things like, you know, little boy likes pink, and it's like, uh-oh, right? And I don't intellectually feel that way, but I I acknowledge that that thought pops in. And that, Jeremy, is where I think you are 100% correct in that, like, these ideas about masculinity, like, they're only hurting us. They're hurting the way that we think about our fellow human beings. 
and they hurt the way that we can make choices. You know, so many of our choices are chosen for us based upon the context of those we're around. Like, we don't, you know, I'm a Chiefs fan. Why? Because, like, biologically, it was really good to be on my dad's side or something. I don't, like, there's probably a lot of reasons, right? But I think a lot of our choices get made that way. The the flip side of that, and, you know, thinking about my own son, and now I have a daughter, uh, I... I hope I teach both my son and my daughter not to throw hard objects inside the house. But if my daughter tends to be like, you know, she's setting up a nice little tea set and like arranging things and like creating a world, like I don't have to worry about the the throwing the hard things inside the house and worry about my windows. But Walter's already shown a proclivity to be a little bit of a madman. He thinks it is hilarious to throw things. And, like, when I get mad at him, his first reaction at my no is to, like, laugh and then, like, Mm -hmm. thinking I'm joking or something, right? And so when I'm saying that there's something real about being male that is different and creating, like, masculine features to help somebody recognize, like, why is it I am this way? There are individual ways to manage the world and there are societal, cultural ways to manage the world. And I do think that concepts of masculinity have helped tame a lot of, a lot of crazy alpha behavior. And that's the only thing I'm driving at when I'm saying that there's something there, right? Like, Maybe, maybe if we put all the kids into ballet and baseball, it would, it would work out better. I have no idea. We haven't like done the experiment, right? But I, I, wor- I wonder if there isn't still something to that. Uh, and I'm no expert, right? I'm going to play it by ear with my own kids and, you know, we'll figure it out. But that's the only thing I'm talking about is like something there to save. Otherwise... Jeremy, I think you're dead on. Like, as adults, the concept of masculinity and femininity, like, unmooring those from from gender, I think, is really helpful. I had, so, something that, um, as, as we talk about this, I mean, so, this is one of the questions that, that we kind of talked about before that I think that I really want to get uh, Jeremy's take on it. Because, I mean, let's call it what it is. We're three white dudes, probably been middle-class most of our lives, right? We we have the upper middle to upper middle. We have the privilege. (laughs) We have this privilege. Like we we don't have to, we can talk, we have the privilege to talk about what is masculinity. Whereas, you know, there are many people, even in our own society, that being a certain level of masculine is whether you survive or not survive. Well, I guess the point that I want to get to, and and I'll just, I'll kind of just read it because Jeremy, I I phrase it in in an email to you, but, but there's this thing that I, that I sort of grapple with and it's two sides of the coin. So one of them is, you know, being a white middle-class man in America for the most part, you know, life's pretty good. Life's What did Louis CK say? 
we, we said it on the last podcast, Dusty. He was like, being a white man. I like to jerk off in front of women in <laughs> hotel rooms. <laughs> yeah, he said After that, that too. The he probably thing, said that the before. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that, that was the segue. He said, like, you know, he was like, being a white guy is not bad. If I had to come back and do life again, that would be my, what I'd sign up for, right? Or right. it's not bad. But so, so being a white middle class man in America with, with really no complaints. But also, we all struggle with something. I have things that I struggle with. There's things that. So, so how do you reconcile that? And also, and you're, you're very in, you're very passionate about uh, meditation and sensing the feelings in the body, and and so the the need to not deny or suppress those feelings or thoughts. So, you know, for example, like you know, if if I and I'm in sales, I, I miss my sales goal. I kind of get, I can get a little down about it because that's how I provide for my family. But then I think, and this is how this happens all the time in, in sales calls and all these things. Hey, we, we got a job. Everything's all right. You know, everyone's healthy. And it's like, I recognize that those are very good things and I'm not, I'm not minimizing that, but also like, I still have these feelings and thoughts. So how, how do you reconcile those two things? And, mm-hmm. you know, I'd like to get your input on that. And if the question, does the question make sense? It does. Yeah, it's a great question. I'm trying to think about how to frame it. I think, I think, you know, one of the themes in our conversation so far has been around the messiness and allowing the messiness and letting go of trying to have this like perfect kind of take on stuff. So I'm thinking about how, for me, how I reconcile that is I, I allow room, like if I really think about my life at the moment, like I allow room for something that you guys have talked about recently, gratitude, right? So gratitude for everything I do have. Um, A lot of things you talked about, the material comforts. I'm not talking about privilege. That's another thing. And and that's the next thing, but just real gratitude, like in my body, like to be alive, right? To have this particular food that I'm eating, to have the job that I have and be able to do the meaningful work I do and all that. Right. So kind of in the gratitude is in the moment for me. So that I wanted to say that then there's the privilege piece, which I feel like is always in relation to society and to other people. Like I'm privileged compared to other people. So it's a more of a relational thing. Um, and it's a more of an intellectual thing. Um, and I don't want to deny it, right? Like white privilege exists. Um, at least I believe it does. And so there's those two pieces, but I also want to say like, you said that like, Oh, I don't have any complaints. And then you also said, Oh, you know, I have, there are things that I deal with. Right. Right. Um, and I want to, I want to kind of focus in on that, or I try to focus in on that where let's focus on the, uh, I think about it most, mostly with the white thing. I haven't thought about it in the man, the masculine piece yet, but like, for whiteness, like whiteness was invented. Like the, the idea of like being a white person was literally invented. And like, I've been learning a little bit about the history of this, like in the late 1600s laws just suddenly appeared on the books, like in Maryland and Virginia, um, to start to separate out white people, European immigrants from yeah, the Af- race African wasn't slaves. Even, race wasn't like, yeah, I don't think even right. race was even a term. Right. Until the 1600s. And, and that yeah. was, yeah, that was further along, right? So this idea of white, whiteness and being white served a purpose in a particular economic system, capitalism with the slave system in the United States. 
And at some point, my ancestors came over for different reasons. I'm really curious about trying to find why. The, the, the question of why is so important to me about why my particular people came over. Um, and then they had to let go of their traditions, their rituals, their spirituality, so many things, right? Their ways of being and connecting with each other that they had for thousands of years. Like I've been reading about some of my German ancestors in South, uh, Southwest Germany, um, sauerkraut and, you know, the, the Riesling wine, they were, they were, they worked on vineyards. Like I have no access to that. It was all traded away for this concept of whiteness of being white and American. Right. Um, and I feel sort of cut off. Like I have a friend that wrote a piece, an essay called roots deeper than whiteness. So trying to find roots that are deeper than this very superficial thing of whiteness. Um, so that's all to say that like, as much as I have gratitude for so much, so much of my life, things that I have, um, and then I do acknowledge that I have privilege and have to be aware of that when I'm relating to other people, right. In the world, um, I have to like be responsible for this like skin that I was born into, right. This identity, um, at the same time, I feel like my life is missing so much. And I do have issues just like any other human being and actually taking on like white supremacy and other forms of oppression in society is actually going to help me, right? If I can reclaim my roots as a human being, because whiteness just, it doesn't serve me really. It serves me in material ways to some degree, but it doesn't serve me in a deeper kind of spiritual, like connective way in society and community Right. So that was a little like hairy at the end and messy, but did that, did that get across at all? Mm-hmm. I think the thing that's interesting. So Tommy, when you mention like, Oh, I have no complaints, but also like, yes, you very clearly do have complaints. Right. <laughs> in, in, yeah. In, in, in comparison to what people, you know, I'm comparing it to what other, well, this is, this is the thing, right? Like the comparison can help you be grateful and the comparison can also cause despair. Like we, we've heard plenty of stories about the flip side of like depression of people scrolling through Instagram and looking at the lives that are better than their own, mm-hmm. right? Comparison is a tool, but like for me, I took some time towards the, uh, the end of 2020 to like affirm what my personal values are. And I came up with four principles, right? Curiosity, capacity, honesty, and execution. And for me, like those are principles I drive towards to help me like process life. And the honesty thing to originally I thought honesty was like an intellectual principle, but I think it overlaps a ton with curiosity as an emotional principle. And if I'm feeling something, I, I can't deny it. I can't say I have no complaints when I have complaints or else it causes some of that cognitive dissonance that was, I felt most acutely in the trauma that I mentioned earlier about the backside of leukemia. And like, this doesn't make sense. Everything looks good, but I don't feel good. Like, what's going on here? So I think that that honesty about those feelings is critical if you're going to navigate your life sensibly, 
right? And I, I came around to that with happiness, which is something you and I have talked about before, Tommy. Like, I had to admit to myself that happiness was real. Like, mm. this is actually, chasing happiness is actually not a bad plan for how to structure your life. Like, you can do it. You can create a life that causes recurring happiness. But I, and I also, I'm interested on the, the whiteness topic, Jeremy, because it kind of, it trips something in me. And like, I understand what both of you guys are saying about like race being a construction that came hundreds of years ago. But also I live today and being white is very real. Like there, there is an undeniable divide in being a white man and, and a black person in today's America. And there is something that feels, I, I guess I don't know how to process that similarly to how like I don't know how to process the masculinity thing. And I feel like trying to just like say, well, women are as masculine as men and men are as feminine as women is it's like a, a cheat phrase. Like, that's not actually processing the world as it is. Mm -hmm. And similarly, just being like, you know, I deny my white privilege, which you can argue, can you do that or not? Whatever. Like, that's a systemic thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, But like, the whiteness is real. Like, I am white, you know? (laughs) I, I guess I don't really know what to... I don't know what to do with that similarly. And... I, I don't know if it's a bandwidth issue. You know, my second principle is capacity. Hmm. And I feel like maybe I use that as an excuse. I've got kids. I've got a job. I can't be worrying about these other things. And yet, as I said when we opened this up, I can't not be bothered by it. Like, we, you brought it up, and now, like, I'm afflicted. I can't stop. <laughs> right? I'm picking at it. Uh I guess I don't want to, because I also don't want this to run forever, and I don't think it's fair to just, like, cut to the end of this and say, like, so what's the answer? But I would be interested in hearing what you currently do. It sounds like maybe the masculinity pursuit is something newer than the thought work you've done on, yeah. on race. But having processed some ideas around race, how do you get into these ideas? Like, do you start reading a lot? Do you start having conversations? Like, what's the path to improvement look like? Or a path to handling these messy concepts more adroitly? Yeah, great question. Um, First thing about, like, the sort of cognitive dissonance around, oh, like whiteness is a a race as a social construct, yet therefore it's fake, it's made up, but it is a real thing, right? It has impact in the world. It's something that I've adopted is this phrase real, but not true. It comes from a, um, funny enough, a Buddhist teacher, Tibetan Buddhist teacher named Sakni Rinpoche, and he wasn't talking about race. He was talking about 
thoughts like and, and emotions being real but not true. I feel like the Tibetans are like the Jamaican sprinters of emotional thought. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, they they live at like 20,000 feet, so they're just high all the time, like naturally high. So, <laughs> um, but real but not true. Real like but that. not true, right? So that allows for, on the one hand, and, and the way to map it to race for me is that race is real, but it's not true. And it's real because of racism. So racism actually happens in the world. It's a real thing in the world, right? In relation to other people systemically, right? Individually and systemically. So race is real, but not true. Like it's not a truth, but it still has impact. So that mm. that's just kind of an easy little way to try to try to try to allow both it's, of those things to exist at the same time. The way my simple brain processes that is, you know, aside from just some of us having more mellow, you know, what is it? Melanin, whatever in our skin, Melanin, right? Yeah. Melanin. We're, so. we're 99.999% the same, but, but also at the same exact time, because of that slight difference in melanin, there are some people that are hated and hate others just for that reason or, yeah. or receive some sort of pushback or, or, um, assistance because of that reason yeah I, I, I like that real but not true that's really cool yeah i really like it and um and then to get to the specifics of your question dusty i think um the first thing that's coming to mind is is understanding for me reading about and learning about the particular history of the united states that goes beyond the like sort of cartoon version that we were taught in school and the sort of mythology around this country um, that's not to say completely throw all of that out, right? Like, I don't, I don't think, you know, we should go to, there's, there shouldn't be extremes there. Um, but there is, there is more to that story. And I've become convinced over time that white supremacy is a core, like it's central to the American project from the start. It is, it doesn't mean that people weren't well-meaning. Some people were well-meaning, um, but dividing people on race this kind of new concept that was literally invented in the United States. <laughs> so it's, mm. it's, a, it's a United States thing. <laughs> we invented it. So um, knowing that history, kind of the general history, has been really helpful for me to make it more important to me to fit it into my capacity. And then the second... Is there anything off the top of your mind that you would like point to as saying like, hey, here's, here's some really good things to, to read or watch? Yeah, there's actually a need for more simple, like easy, digestible things. And I'm not trying to like put down your intellectual capabilities here, but uh, the stuff that <laughs> the stuff that I've had to like slog through, like it never really like it wasn't really worth it to get like a little bumper sticker of knowledge. You know what I mean? So um, but yeah. there is a book called The uh, Birth of a Birth of the White Nation or Birth of a White Nation. Sorry, by Jacqueline Batalora. And that's the specific history of the laws that were in Virginia and Maryland uh, that that basically invented this new race or the concept of race and whiteness. So there's that piece. And then the other piece, and this is what I'm really into at this moment, is my particular history. And I talked about it before with my ancestors, trying to get a sense of like why my people came over, because as I've learned more about that kind of general history, like 
two thirds of everybody that came here from like England, Scotland, and Ireland, the UK, um, during the 17th century, so early colonies, two thirds were indentured servants. And so most of them were actually forced here. Either they didn't have work in those countries um, and, you know, they were just kind of walking around on the street. They were beggars or whatever and stealing things and they got thrown in jail and then they got sent here for cheap labor to work alongside African slaves. Now, that's not to say that, like, my people suffered as much as black folks ancestors. It's not to get into that comparison. But the point is that my people have suffered to some degree, too, because of white supremacy and because of the system, the larger system uh, of capitalism. Right. And to know why my people came over, like my people literally from Germany came over as indentured servants. They were forced here. They, they were refugees that were kicked off their land. That gives me empathy for the, the refugee, for the migrants that are coming across the border right now from like Honduras, right, that are getting kicked off their land. Right. So I start to empathize mm -hmm. with people beyond just my immediate surroundings, right, um, that are self-serving for me to empathize with. So there's that general history and then the personal history to sort of have better roots to step into than actually doing stuff about racism in the world. I like the personal history uh, without, without knowing much of mine because I feel like at least when you get to the broader cultural discussion around race, black people seem to be very in touch with where they came from. And I don't need to be right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. Hey, There's this feeling of like, right. yeah. Isn't there this feeling of like, well, I was just always here. My family was just always here. Well, like being in touch with, Maybe I wouldn't like going back where I was. Maybe I don't have empathetic roots. Maybe I have, you know, some ugly roots. We all do. Right? We all do. It's, e it's easier. It's just easier to be like, hey, I'm a modern man. It's not my fault. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Not my fault. It's whiteness. Yeah. Yep. No, that's really good. And uh, as long as Birth of a White Nation is under 300 pages so that <laughs> I have the intellectual horsepower... <laughs> well for you Dustin, dude you read you so much man you, for, you, for yeah. you he actually you got he actually it, chose you got a, it. he chose a picture book for you dude because because of your intellectual capacity and i, I, they I make it in a movie probably, yeah I, I know we have to start i start probably wrapping up here because it's getting late and dusty's got a 10 o'clock bedtime um me too though me too i Jer jeremy something i want to and as we say in the sales world Something I'd like to take offline, but something I want to, <laughs> something I do want to discuss with you a little more, and, and this can be just us chatting about it or whatever, is, yeah. is the personal history because that's really of interest to me. Um, you know, I always make the joke that you know my mom, like my grandpa is from Hawaii, right? Mm -hmm. So my roots are in Hawaii are, are pretty, pretty straightforward. And then I just make a joke that my dad's family was grew up in a cornfield, like they were just planted and they just started growing in the cornfield. But but it's really of interest to me to like understand the you know the history of, of why my people came over. So I'd love yeah. to talk with you about that more. That's really cool. Let's, let's do it, man. Yeah, dude. Yeah, we'll. Uh, I guess I'll give room for uh, weekly thoughts. But Jeremy, I thought you might want to stay in on our uh, weekly segment of our self reflection card. Yeah, let's do it. Um, the the one thing I'll say before we, we move into that is 
anything when it comes to the writing, Jeremy, like I can't find enough people to talk to about writing. Like mm. I love it. If I'm given the opportunity, I will talk about it nonstop. So as you get into the, uh, the book writing process, like if you ever hit anything, I have recently, uh, just by dumb luck, my next door neighbor, uh, has published, um, about a dozen mystery novels. Wow. And wow. I have, I moved, I moved into this house about a year ago and with pandemic, you know, we haven't known the neighbors as much as we'd like to. So I've only recently started talking to her about this and realizing the value of having people who uh, share a passion for your crafts and like how much I felt drawn to wanting to get into that more. So if that starts to take over on you, I'm sure you know uh, plenty of other people who write given, you know, your vocation, but, you know, feel free to reach out. I, I cannot open that door any wider to just <laughs> talking about that. <laughs> I'd love that, Dusty. I'd love that. Awesome. So, guys, the uh, for those uninitiated, we draw one card from the self-reflection edition of the card game, We Are Not Really Strangers. Um, it's this particular deck is meant to be a one player game, just give you something to think about, uh, and reflect upon. So, you know, you can all do that yourself, but put us all on the spot. And the question for this week is what's something mean that was said to me in my childhood that I carry to this day? What would I say to my younger self now? Hmm. Man, they do not pull punches. <laughs> That's a therapy session right there. It is. Like me and Tommy have said this before when we've uh we've drawn these cards. Like there's some that you draw and like we should just draw this as soon as we hop on because we could talk all hour long about it. Uh, yeah, by week but does 52, anybody want to take a swing at it? I'll say by week fifty two we might be doing that, dude. <laughs> <laughs> There's, I, I'll just share the first thing that came to my mind, and it's general, but the fact that I still have it over 20 years later, it doesn't matter that it was that general. I was homeschooled until eighth grade, and when I got into eighth grade, there were things, like, I'm confident enough now saying that I'm a very sensitive person. I I internalize a lot and I I have a high introspective churn. And when I got into 8th grade, I recognized pretty quickly like I didn't quite have the right labels, my shoes weren't exactly what the other kids were wearing and it I probably said less in that first year of school. I I don't know if I spoke less in eighth grade or when I was two. It like I was so clammed up. And yet, you know, the things that homeschool did prepare me for were were schoolwork. Like I was I was immediately like at the, the top of my class, like all the schoolwork was exceptionally easy. And I had a teacher, uh, Doug Banker. He was our communication arts teacher. 
And he really liked me because like I was this quiet kid who would never talk about anything in class, but like he really liked my papers. And that always meant a lot to me that like he thought that there was good stuff inside of me. And I remember this class where he tried to like, I think help me out. Like somehow we were having a conversation and he was talking to some of the the class about like dating advice or something. And he's like, you know, you girls should be interested in somebody who's confident, who doesn't always try too hard to prove themselves. Somebody who's got it together like Dustin. <laughs> and the guy who was the most outspoken, like easily probably, yeah, I, I don't think it's much competition. He was an unbelievable athlete, insane athlete, and like a traditional like dumb jock mold, like not a bright kid, but had all the confidence you'd expect from somebody with those physical gifts. And when Mr. Banker said that, he yells out, "But he's boring!" Whole class, and it. All that insecurity that I'd been like trying to shield myself from all year long. And I just like, I could feel myself beat red. And it's a miracle I made it out of class without crying. And what's funny is that guy ended up being a pretty good friend. (laughs) 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 But, but, uh, I don't know, man. Like, I just, it was like the first realization that like, like how vulnerable I really was. Like it, it wouldn't take much to sink me, you know? And, uh, look, I've done a lot of work over the last couple of decades to, to try to understand myself better and give myself more grace. And I don't know that I could say anything to my younger self now other than like, just tell myself that I love you. And try to remind that little version of myself that like that I cared for him, that that he's worth something. You know, try to give him something. Uh yeah. but it just took time. Thanks for sharing that, dude. That's really Yeah. That's powerful, man. Yeah. The, you can uh, you can tee it so up, Jeremy. If, everybody, can, if anybody wants to, if anybody yeah, wants me, to get us back in the podcast reviews, in the reviews <laughs> section, they know what to. They know the heat what to, to bring. say. What to say? One star. The button boring. to push. <laughs> <laughs> I got a, I got a quick one. Uh, thank you both for sharing that stuff, though. It's vulnerable. Uh, I'm gonna try not to drag my parents too much here, but there was a uh, there was a number of times when I was. I would imagine maybe three, four, five. I just remember riding around with my parents in the car. And they would point out a house that was like falling down, like a decrepit, like trailer, like no one lives in it, abandoned house, just whenever we'd see one. And they were like, oh, that's Jeremy's house. And they would laugh. And like, because I would get upset, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think even going back to the theme of our conversation around masculinity, it took me all the way until seeing a therapist a few years ago and having that conversation with her, telling her about that. And she told me what I would tell myself then. Now that hurts. 
you know, like I didn't even want to see that as pain for so long. Like I didn't see it as like mm. my parents were hurting me, you know, um, because it really did, imp it really did affect me. Uh, and like kind of being made fun of in that way. And, you know, I have the sort of wider perspective now not to judge my parents for that because they were like younger, they were like 30, you know, at that time or something or like late 20, <laughs> you know, like I probably, I do that now. Like I make fun of like my neighbor, neighbor has, you know, a young neighbors have a young girl and like, I'll fall into like making fun of her for something. You know what I mean? And sometimes it feels like a little malicious. So I don't want to blame them for it, but it did hurt me. And just admitting that it hurt is, is what I need to tell myself. That's a really good reminder Actually, too, since you both have little kids, you know? Yeah. That's why I went with it. I was like, I don't want to drag my parent. Eh, you know, let's put it in the world. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, I, I can see it. I mean, you know, it's one of those things like when is, you know, our dads probably did this too. If you get a little scratch on your finger or something and it hurts and your dad's like, I also got to cut it off. Yep. 50% of the time he thinks it's hilarious. 50% of the time he's hysterical. He doesn't even want me to say it. That's a good reminder that you know, they don't have that frontal lobe to process that I'm not actually going to cut his finger off, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, not, not that a good dad joke doesn't have its place, but it's also, you right. know, be, being aware of that, you know, he's, at four, he's, he's much more aware of these things. That's, that's a really cool reminder, man. Thanks for sharing that. For sure. Yeah, for sure. All right, last thing, guys. Uh, and Jeremy, if you don't have one prepared, don't feel bad. But the, uh, the last send-off, make a recommendation to the listeners. Absolutely anything, a product, a service. Um, just a, a good piece of advice is even, is even welcome. Tommy, do you have a recommendation for the week? You know, I didn't come super prepared this week. Um, I thought you were a sales guy. Recommendation. <laughs> yeah. No, Who was the guy that was like, came on at like 746? That would be me. Um, gosh, what is that show we watched? On? Have you guys, either of you watch anything on HBO Max? Yeah, uh, sure. Yeah. Uh, what was the one with Nicole Kidman um, and... Uh, Big Little Lies? Nope. Bring it back to me at the end. You give yours and I'll have it when you come back to me. Cause it was a really, really good, um, series. Sounds memorable. <laughs> I know, man. Sorry. It's nine 34. It's nine 34. It's close to my bedtime. <laughs> oh, I'm with it. Oh, there, there uh, it is. Got it. I got it. I got it. I got it. Sorry. The undoing, hmm. the undoing. It was intense and, um, it was really is a good it scary. One ish ish hmm. sort of a it's sort of a psychological murder mystery thriller so you know if that's not your thing probably don't watch it but it's definitely more of like a psychological thriller hmm. someone else recommended that recently too so i should probably check it out what is dust uh, so i guess the uh the computer's dying here so i gotta <laughs> plug in and i don't wanna <laughs> i was gonna say it's a good thing you're wearing pants, you guys dude. yeah we're <laughs> you don't like this angle? <laughs> you look like, like Mick Jagger. I know, the something. outlet doesn't work. Yeah, oh, no. I've been working on my mobility, so. Yeah. Looks good. I mean, with, with femurs like that, you have to, man. My gosh. <laughs> femurs? It's always been a curse. It's always been a curse to my leg power. 
We really got to get a new camera for this. Uh, right. While he's getting set up, yeah, I was say, Jeremy, while he's getting set up, yeah, you I can go. To, uh, anything? Yeah, I. Uh, you can be your own podcast if you want, man. Feel free. Nah, I don't want to. Yeah, let me uh, appreciate it. But uh, no, this documentary called The Work. So I think it came out a few years ago. It's actually on this. Um, it's on this service called, or this platform called Canopy. Starts with a K, and you can get that free with a library card if you just have any library card. Um, I think you get like six free views a month or something like that. But anyway, the work is what it's called. It's a documentary about a men's therapy group uh, in a prison, a men's prison, and just to watch, um, just to watch these guys. Like some of them have like like murdered people, right? Um, watch them break down about like the the early pain and suffering that they went through, and how they want to stop being angry and how that's not serving them and stopping violent and how that's not serving them. It's just super powerful, super powerful wow. documentary. A lot of crying. I cr- I've, I cried multiple times watching it and I don't cry very much because I'm a man. <laughs> nice. Way to bring way it back. T- way to tie it all in, man. <laughs> <laughs> all right. And uh, my recommendation should be longer cords to charge your computers <laughs> with. <laughs> but... Uh, I'm, I've, I've want to recommend the book I'm currently reading because I'm, I'm enamored with it, uh, anti-fragile, um, but I'm only halfway through it. So, you know, what if it falls apart? Crappy recommendation. So I just gave my, uh, father-in-law a book that I've read twice that almost everybody I've ever known who's read it, loves it. It is the memoir of Phil Knight, the founder of Nike. It's called Shoe Dog, and it is awesome. Incredible characters, crazy story. Um, And Jeremy, near and dear to your heart, a story of triumph in American capitalism. So, (laughs) Part of me loves that stuff, man. I get fired up, (laughs) just like all of us. (laughs) But... Dude, that is uh, that is it for this week. Jeremy, thank you a ton for coming on, man. I would love to have you on down the road and dig into some other topics. I was telling Tommy the, you know, I appreciate you being willing to say, hey, I'm a socialist, because, I mean, I was raised in, <laughs> you guys love this? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry, guys, I have a dog licking me in the face. Uh, Cute dog. But. Thank you. Uh, we we just found out he has like dog epilepsy, so we're oh, going to start paying for medicine. That's a oh, whole other thing. Oh man, I hate to hear that. Um, yeah, he's doing great though. So anyway, <laughs> nothing like running the the turnout point here, but uh, I just feel like so many of my viewpoints about the way that the country runs has been like mainstream capitalism. I've been taken into the veins, and I would love to get a a thoughtful perspective from the other side to, to help balance me and widen my my view of the world. So I'd love to have you on again sometime down the road if you're open to it, man. I'm totally open to that, man. Totally. Definitely. I love I, it. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Well, dude, so good to see you. I, I appreciate the time, man. Yeah, it was great, great talking with you guys. Great getting lost with you guys. Um, 
my brain is getting lost right now as we get close to this is actually past my bedtime like 9 30 yes. is my bedtime. yeah dude so like, sorry about it mm. I, I, yeah yeah I'm, I'm right there i'm right there with you man i couldn't remember the name of a show we watched two weeks ago so i'm right there with you <laughs> yeah all right brother i appreciate <laughs> all right, it man fellas. hey it's been good i'll talk to y'all later see you guys all right brothers all right, see you bye <laughs>